The reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 37. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel of it, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Friends, good morning, and thank you to Jean for reading for us today. If you don't know Jean, Jean actually leads our Young Mums Bible Study group here on a Tuesday morning. So if you are a young mum or you know young mums who are looking for a group of uh, other women who you can share the Bible with and have uh, childcare at the same time, you might want to chat to Jean before you go today. Now, before we get underway, uh, you'd be aware, perhaps, of the bill that was for voluntary assisted dying. Um, that's a big deal, I think. And so what we, we've got for you this morning is we've got a little book here called Assisted Suicide by Vaughan Roberts. Uh, and we're going to give these away for free. We've got a few over here in front. This series is produced by The Good Book Company. And they're designed to help us think and talk biblically through today's big issues with compassion, conviction, and clarity. Um, so we want to make these available for free. I think first, if you are a healthcare worker... You get dibs on one of these this morning. Please just come grab one from the table. So doctors, nurses, um, physiotherapists, dentists, dermatologists, whatever. If you work in any of those fields, come and grab one of these, our free gift to you. If there are any left over, others can grab them afterwards, but want to make those available. You can also buy these from Kurong or from Good Book Company online. Well, let's pray as we come to God's word now. Would you join me? Our Lord and God, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts now to accept your word. Please silence in us any voice but your own, and that hearing we may all 
We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On the 8th of May, 2006, a Congolese business studies graduate called Mr. Guy Goma walked into the British Broadcasting offices in London. He was there for a job interview. On the same day, the BBC had planned for a news interview with uh, a technology journalist called Guy Cuny about a major lawsuit involving the up-and-coming tech giant Apple, Apple Computers. And while Mr. Goma was waiting for his interview, someone walked into the reception room and said to him, Are you Guy? And he said, yes. And he was very quickly whisked into another room where he had makeup applied. He had a microphone fitted. And before he knew it, he was sitting in a news studio opposite uh, BBC journalist Kate Bowerman, being asked for his opinion on the current lawsuit with Apple Computers. And what happened next made for unforgettable viewing, as a visibly surprised Mr. Goma was suddenly asked, are you surprised by the verdict today? Not go. And he responded, I am very surprised to see this verdict come on me because I was not expecting that. And you know, he managed to bluff his way through about two minutes of a TV interview about a field he knew very little about. Uh, Sadly, in the end, he didn't get the job he'd applied for, but uh, he did become an internet sensation. Uh, And you can find his video on YouTube somewhere. But it's a marvelous story of mistaken identity. You see, the BBC had Guy, but they clearly had the wrong Guy. In our reading from Mark's Gospel this morning, we've got another case of mistaken identity. Peter guesses correctly that Jesus is the Christ, but the Christ he has in mind is completely different to what Jesus and the Bible means when they call him the Christ. Now, in our sermon series this term, we've managed to cover a whole sweep of Old Testament history. We started at the beginning in Genesis. We've seen God's plans being worked out progressively uh, through uh, his dealings with Adam and Eve, through Moses and the Exodus, bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt, uh, and then with the rise and the fall, uh, and then the exile of the kingdom of Israel. And by the time we reach the Old Testament... We've been led to anticipate the arrival of someone who, promised by God, would defeat Satan, though he'll be wounded in the process, but he'll be a suffering servant who would also be a substitute sacrifice to turn away God's judgment on sin and to rescue God's people from slavery to sin forever, and who then himself would be a righteous and majestic king over God's people, over this wonderful eternal kingdom that God will establish. And this promised serpent crusher, king and rescuer, he would personally establish God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing forever. It'll be like the Garden of Eden, but it'll be better. And the Old Testament calls this person the anointed one, or the Messiah in Hebrew, which is the same as the New Testament Greek word, the Christ. But of course, the Old Testament ends, and we're still waiting for the Christ. And God is silent for 400 years, until suddenly a 
carpenter's son is born in Nazareth, and his name is Jesus. Now, I'd love you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 that we had read for us this morning. There's an outline in the service brochure, and we're up to our first heading on our sermon outline today. Now, by the time we get to Mark chapter 8, Jesus has been born, he's grown up, he's he's been baptized by John in the Jordan River, he's been tempted by the devil in the desert, and he's been doing circuits around northern Palestine. He's been healing the sick, he's been casting out demons, he's been calming storms, he's been raising the dead, he's been feeding enormous crowds, and he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. And now Mark records in chapter 8 a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples during a break in this very hectic schedule. So please follow with me from verse 27. It says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is north of Galilee. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say... Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Who is Jesus? It's a question people have been asking for centuries. Excuse me. To some, Jesus is no more than a fairy tale character. He's kind of in the same vein as Cinderella and Peter Pan and Shrek. To many, that is Jesus. But to those who've actually bothered to consider the evidence, both inside the Bible and outside the Bible, of course, he is something more. At the very least, he existed in human history. There was actually a person called Jesus of Nazareth, who was called the Christ. To many, of course, Jesus is a model of love and humility and martyrdom for a cause. To others, he is a great teacher or a major influencer on our cultural history, or he's the founder of a religious movement that bears his name, Christianity. Uh, There was a book of essays published last year that was edited by British historian Tom Holland that styled Jesus as a revolutionary. Uh, He came to revolutionize politics, society, religion, and even the inward self. By contrast to the religious authorities of Jesus' day, he was variously a curiosity, a troublemaker, or a criminal. But to many first-century Jews around the time of Jesus, he was a prophet, as the disciples reported. And, of course, this isn't surprising. You know, from what they've seen of Jesus so far, he says God things in his teaching, and he does God things in his miracles, It looks a lot like the prophets in the Old Testament they were familiar with, people like Moses or Elijah, who they mention. In fact, the kind of period of miracles around the time of Jesus is unparalleled in the Old Testament except around the times of Elijah and Moses. Even John the Baptist was a prophet. Looking at biblical history, in many ways, he was the last great Old Testament prophet. Of course, John had been killed recently by King Herod because he called out Herod's moral compromises. 
Jesus, of course, was a cousin of John on his mother's side. And you kind of wonder that maybe in the right light, there was more than a passing resemblance to John, which led people to some rather uh, superstitious conclusions. But there's more in the reference to John the Baptist and even more in the reference to Elijah because of some of the very last words in the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi, the last book we have in our Old Testament, chapter 4, verse 5, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so when the people say that Jesus is perhaps John the Baptist or Elijah, they're not just saying that he's any prophet. They're saying maybe he is the prophet, the last prophet who comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But they dare not hope that he is anything more than that. Uh, Interestingly, this is the conclusion that Islam draws about Jesus, that he is the greatest prophet uh, before Muhammad, but no more. And then in, in Jesus' conversation with his disciples, because it's waiting on your society's view of Jesus. It's a very different thing to be asked what you think about Jesus. And so Jesus turns to Peter and asks him directly in verse, uh, verse 29, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And it says that he strictly charged them to tell no one about him about his own views, and, and Peter responds with a, a startling level of clarity and conviction. You are the Christ. In other words, based on what he's heard Jesus say and what he's seen Jesus do, Peter can draw only one conclusion. Jesus isn't paving the way for someone to come after him. He is the one who was to come. He's actually the one the whole Old Testament was pointing to. He fulfills all of those things that we've been looking at over the last seven weeks. Can it possibly be true? Well, it's curious that Jesus doesn't confirm or deny Peter's statement. Instead, he tells them not to tell anyone about him. Verse 30. You know what? I think it's just as well. Because even though Peter's identified Jesus as the Christ to realize what Jesus' identity means for his mission and what it means for those who will follow him. So this is up to our second heading on the outline this morning, the consequences for him, for Jesus. And rather than, you know, just marching straight to Jerusalem and openly declaring himself to be the one who was to come, kicking out the Romans and establishing himself in the temple... Jesus begins to teach his disciples. So look with me at verse 31. Excuse me. It says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after his rise again. And he said this plainly. There's no sort of metaphors or hidden messages in Jesus' words here. He very clearly brings together those Old Testament threads of the suffering servant and the substitute sacrifice as necessary consequences of being the Christ. And you'll notice also how Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. That should make us think of Daniel 7 that we looked at last week. So yes, the Christ might be God's promised king and rescuer, 
But the only way he gets there is through his own suffering and death. The Christ of the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Son of Man, he's a glorious and majestic figure who will rule over God's people, in God's place, with God's people, forever. But you cannot separate out his rejection, his suffering, and his death from his mission. Without those things, he cannot be God's king. If he's not a suffering savior, he's not a savior at all. And that's because his mission is not to meet us at our point of comfort or point of want, but his mission is actually to meet us at our point of deepest need, to deal with the sin that separated us from our creator and put us under his judgment forever. If he is the Christ, he must suffer and die for sin. And you know, this is the Bible's witness about the Christ from its earliest pages, from Genesis 3. We were told about the one who was to come, who would be injured, would, would suffer. It's too much for Peter, though. <laughs> he said Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus is saying this, and he, he starts to short-circuit. Clearly, his idea of the Christ is at odds with what Jesus is saying. Look with me at verse 32, the end of verse 32. He takes Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. You can't have that right, Jesus. You're misreading the situation here, Jesus. That doesn't work, Jesus. That's not a good path to take, Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And you see, you see, what Peter had done was instead of putting a biblical filter over what Jesus means when he says he's the Christ, Peter puts a human filter over that identity. And he arrives at an understanding of God's promised one which is incompatible with, with rejection and suffering and death. Did Peter believe that Jesus was maybe more of a, a revolutionary? That he should be the one marching into Jerusalem and taking charge? Maybe Peter thought, you know, this, this, this healing and teaching thing is really going well for us. Jesus dies, that's all lost. Maybe he should keep doing the healing and teaching thing and building his fan base. That, that would be a good thing to do. We don't know what Peter had in mind, but it's clearly a case of mistaken identity. He knows Jesus is the Christ, but he's got the wrong Christ. And of course, there is something else going on here because you see Satan suddenly entering the picture. Might not be obvious to those standing around, but he's obvious to Jesus. It seems to be that when Jesus' true identity is unmasked and his mission is clear, that Satan uses Peter to try and tempt Jesus to avoid it to abort his mission. It's very similar to what happened to Jesus in the desert. Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt God, something he's been doing for a long time. He's trying to get Jesus to back out or try to achieve it another way. 
which of course is no way at all. And that's because Satan knows his Bible too. He knows that if the one God promises follows the path of his own suffering and death, that Satan's own days are numbered. That when the heel of the serpent crusher is is struck, the head of the serpent is crushed. And he's defeated in the process. So if Jesus is the Christ, the whole Bible shows us what his path must be. I think even Satan can see that. He cannot simply be a great teacher or the founder of a religious movement or a kind of guru or even a supreme example of love and humility or a martyr for a cause. It doesn't fit. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's the path the Christ must take. It's the only possible consequence of being the Christ. Because only in this way can God's anger and judgment at sin be turned away and God's people set free. Only through suffering can God's king be glorified. Well, let's turn to our third heading. This is from 34. We'll actually go through to 38. I think we accidentally left 38 off the reading for today and off the service outlines. Once Jesus has clarified who he is and what his mission needs to be, he then turns to what it truly means to follow him. And that order is very important. Because it's only when you realize who Jesus actually is that you'll know what following him actually looks like. So please look with me at verse 34. Jesus called the crowd to him and said to his disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I was listening to an interview this week about the Crusades, the 11th century religious wars, uh, where some Christians believe that it was their duty to God to travel to the Middle East and fight against Muslims in the hope of reclaiming supposedly uh, holy lands. And I was actually quite surprised to learn that this verse was frequently used by preachers and popes to encourage Christians to go and be warrior pilgrims on a crusade. That they would encourage people to take up the cross by taking up a military banner And by losing one's life for the gospel and thereby saving it, that was all about being killed in battle in a crusade. In fact, they said that by participating in a crusade and dying there, you could have all your sins expunged. I think most of us can probably see, and quite thankfully, that that's got nothing to do with what Jesus had in mind here. It's got nothing to do with misguided religious wars. 
But what, what is Jesus calling us to? Well, quite simply, he's calling those who follow him as he truly is, in his footsteps. He's calling those who follow him to submit entirely to a suffering Savior. To expect that our experience of following him will actually reflect something of who he is and what he came to do. The invitation, friends, to follow Jesus is to come and die. It's no wonder that it's not a very popular message. Following Jesus means enduring discomfort, difficulty, suffering, and maybe even death for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel. Because we know that our best life is still to come. Jesus is quite clear. You can't have it all. But if you choose to follow him, you will have the best. And Jesus' path to glory was through suffering. It was the only way he was going to get there. And so our path to glory needs to be through suffering as well. Whether it's through suffering persecution, whether it's through suffering uh, just the difficulty of following Jesus in this world with these bodies and these minds and these hearts. Verse 38 gives us that majestic picture of Daniel, son of man, uh, with his glorious return as God's anointed king, with this entourage of, of heavenly servants. And it says, Jesus says, we may join him if we've been following the Bible's idea of Jesus. But if not, Jesus will be ashamed of us. What I want to leave you with today is that who you think Jesus is is going to unavoidably shape what you think it means to follow him. You see, if you think Jesus is nothing more than a fairy tale character, well, who cares about following him? He doesn't exist. He requires nothing of you. If Jesus is just a religious teacher, if he's some kind of founder of a religious movement, or, well, then we're just going to see Christian discipleship as kind of trying to stick to a moral philosophy or an ethical framework, or just as a kind of religious devotion thing. If Jesus is the supreme example of love and humility and of martyrdom for a cause, well, then I guess following him means just trying our best to imitate him. But if he is who the Bible clearly says he is, God's promised king and savior, well, then following him means following him. So I want to encourage you this morning to ask yourself who you actually think Jesus is. Has our series so far given you a fuller picture of his identity and mission as we've gone through the Old Testament? Did you have the things that you knew confirmed, or were there some surprises, maybe? And then once you've asked yourself who you think Jesus is, I'd like to encourage you to take stock and ask yourself if your Christianity, your discipleship, the way you follow Jesus, is actually accurate to who Jesus is. Because if we've got the wrong Jesus, of course, our following of Jesus is going to be out of step 
But of course, if we see that our following Jesus is out of step, it works the other way. Maybe we haven't actually understood who Jesus is. What are you expecting from Jesus? Are you expecting a good reputation or material comfort and an easy life? Maybe something that you can put in a box and take out on Sundays, put it back on Monday morning? Maybe some wisdom to live by. Maybe some religion, but not too much. Or are you expecting forgiveness and freedom from sin and life forever as God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing? Whatever happens now. I mean, we know that people in our world, they freely use Jesus Christ as, as a swear word. I think if they knew what that title Christ meant, they wouldn't dare. But you know, there's a danger for us as well who call ourselves Christians. All of those in the census who tick the box Christian. By calling ourselves Christians, we identify with the Christ of the Bible. Is the way we live and the way we follow Jesus worthy of that name? Because as we've seen, you can call Jesus the Christ, but have the completely wrong idea about what that means. And friends, this is serious business, because as Jesus said, it's about saving or losing your soul forever. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the Christ, along with all that that means. And it means there is only one thing he came to do, and therefore only one way to follow him. Would you join me as we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you so much that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our King and Saviour. And Lord God, we thank you that you've given us the whole Bible to help us know who Jesus is. And Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to see Jesus as he truly is. And Lord, to indeed deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Trusting what he's, that there is a heaven waiting for us, where we will be your people in your place, under your rule and blessing forever. We pray to Jesus, our King and Saviour. Amen.